This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And to purchase MMS or any of our seasons on our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with lots of bonus material, visit our Veritas store. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. The myth of oil scarcity has allowed four giant corporations, along with a handful of Wall Street banks, to control the world's largest and most essential commodity, oil. The myth originated in the 1950s from a geologist at Royal Dutch Shell. It was revived in 2003, in time for the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The reality is quite different from claims of peak oil. The world is running into oil and not running out of oil. Oil does not come from the accumulation of algae, plankton, or dinosaur remains. In fact, Russian researchers over decades of testing and observation, concluded that oil fields do not die. They constantly renew themselves. 
we are told otherwise, to perpetuate the scarcity myth, which keeps the price of oil high. The wars in Africa, the Arab Spring, Iraq, are all to maintain a lock-grip control of the world's known oil fields. The myth of scarcity has been a pillar of their power, and in fact of the power projection of the United States as sole superpower. As Henry Kissinger said, if you control the oil, you control entire nations. The opposite is also true. If oil cannot be controlled, the controlling powers lose their control over other nations and the wars that go with it. The dollar financial system of Wall Street was born not at a conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944. It was born in the first days of August 1945 with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After that point, the world was in no doubt of who was the power to reckon with. Tonight, we will trace the history of money as an instrument of power and trace the evolution of that power in the hands of a tiny elite that regards themselves as, quite literally, gods. We will discuss how this group of psychopaths abuse their power and how they systematically set out to control the entire world. We will also discuss how a small socio-political American elite seeks to establish its control over the very basis of human survival, the provision of our daily bread. Control the food and you control the people. There is a world of profit-driven political intrigue, government corruption and coercion, where genetic manipulation and the patenting of life forms are used to gain worldwide control over food production. If you want to believe the mainstream media, stop this audio now. To know the truth about oil, money, and the seeds of destruction, don't go anywhere. F. William Engdahl is tonight's special guest. Coming up, right now, on Veritas. This is Dr. John Coleman, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. F. William Engdahl is one of the more widely discussed analysts of current political and economic developments. In addition to discussing oil, geopolitics, and energy issues, he has written on issues of agriculture, GATT, WTO, IMF, energy, politics, and economics for more than 30 years, beginning with the first oil shock and world grain crisis in the early 1970s. He is the author of many books translated into 11 foreign languages, including Full Spectrum Dominance, Seats of Destruction, A Century of War, Gods of Money, and the most recent, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars. William Engdahl tries to shed light on various dark corners so that ordinary people will get an idea of what has been done to us and how to act accordingly. And to learn more about F. William Engdahl and his work, visit his website at William Engdahl, that's E-N-G-D-A-H-L dot com, which is also linked on ours. And directly from Frankfurt, Germany, I'm honored to welcome for the first time on Veritas, F. William Engdahl. Hello, Mr. Engdahl. Welcome. How are you? Thank you, Mel, for having me. I'm quite fine. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I was telling you offline, uh, may I call you William, by the way? Please, yeah. Thank you. I have to tell you that in the next two hours, I'm probably going to have to compress 
what would take maybe not one, but a few semesters in, in, at the university because for the first time I've been exposed to your work and I have to tell you, I don't know why I haven't been exposed to you, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of our listeners would want definitely to want these books on their libraries because the information that you discuss is history. It fills a lot of the, the dots and we'll try to do as best we can tonight. First, I have to ask you, what made you disillusioned with how things are run in, in this world? Is this what motivated you to start researching all of this? Well, I suppose it uh, started, if you want to really go back, uh, I'm of the generation that uh, went to university during the Vietnam War. And that had a profound effect on me. I, I uh, got out of college and went to work for uh, Lyndon Johnson's so-called War on Poverty. It was a sham. It was a, a, a kind of a ghetto removal project, if you will. Uh, to open the door for gentrification of, of certain urban areas. But uh, the Vietnam War was really the thing that uh, that uh, most uh, affected me in, in those days. And from there, I went uh, as a graduate student, uh, leaving some steps in between now, uh, several years of work. I went, uh, decided to go to Sweden uh, to study international politics at the University of Stockholm. And there I met refugees, political uh, asylum seekers and so from all over the world, from uh, Africa, from Brazil, from uh, different parts. And as, as you do when you, when you have the luxury of being a student, you sit around and, and talk about uh, world politics and what's going on and so forth. So that, uh, that kind of deepened my uh, uh, thoughts in this direction. And... As I said, there are many books that you've written, and I spend time reading the, the latest one, uh, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars. And this is such a, a big history for people to, to know. But I have to ask you from the beginning. In the United States, we have this notion, always support our troops. I'm one of those that respects what the military does and our volunteer soldiers do. However, there's something in me that says that they're being used as pawns in a chess game being played by psychopaths. How yeah. can more of the mainstream people get it? Well, uh, that's the reason I write, write my books uh, the way I do. I write them for the mainstream people that they can uh, understand what's affecting their lives. Uh, uh, let me just give an anecdote. I live in an area where there are a number of uh, senior military personnel coming through on their way back from Afghanistan, Iraq, and other theaters. And uh, they pass through uh, the Frankfurt area on their way to next assignment. Sure. And uh, sometimes I have the occasion over a glass of beer at, at uh, uh, one of my favorite local pubs to, to chat a little bit. And they ask me what I think about the world and this and that. And I tell them quite honestly. Uh, and almost invariably, and these are these are sometimes very senior colonel rank and 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 so forth people, and they say I couldn't agree with you more. So they realize that they're being used as cannon fodder. They have military pensions at stake. They have family. Uh, many of them joined the military because uh, uh, fifteen or so years ago that was a, a golden path to a career where the government would finance your university education. Your skills trainings and so forth and you'd serve 
three or four years in a peaceful area and then, and then suddenly comes 9-11 and you're uh, getting your head shot off or all sorts of things. So it's no longer the, the, the dream job it, it used to be 15 years ago. But uh, I think it's uh, they realize, many of them, the intelligent ones, that they're being used as cannon fodder. And see, that's the issue. Even some of our listeners are military, and they write to me, and they say, look, I've been here for two, three, four years, a few tours in the Middle East, and I'm waking up. However, I have a pension, benefits, education waiting for me. I have a family. I don't know how to get out without having all of this jeopardized. What do you tell them? Yeah, well, that's that's the dilemma you've got to resolve in your conscience as a, as a moral human being. I can't tell you how to resolve it. And now, for a long time, let's, let's talk about China for a second, because I think this is where the resources are going now. We've had this symbiotic relationship between the United States and China, but I find it hypocritical that the biggest capitalist country in the world borrows so much money from the biggest communist country in the world. How do you reconcile that? <laughs> uh, you take the money where you can get it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, uh, it's not, the, well, the U.S. government uh, finances, ironically, it finances its wars that are ultimately wars in Africa and Afghanistan and Iraq directed against China. Those wars are aimed at controlling the future oil supplies supply pipelines of, of China in order to control the Chinese economic growth and make sure it stays on the program that Washington wants. So uh, uh, that uh, you can perfectly well, perfectly well understand why Washington and Wall Street uh, do that. Uh, the other thing is that it's not the United States as, as a people and so it's the multinational corporations and the Wall Street banks which are using China as the world's cheapest labor pool, exploiting that to the hilt and uh, taking the profits out of China back uh, to offshore centers in uh, the Canary Islands or wherever they, uh, they do their accounting. And we'll discuss the Jasmine Revolution and the Arab Spring because I think a lot of this has nothing to do about the Middle East, it's all about China. But since you, you mentioned China as the global sweatshop, what happens when China starts shedding the sweatshop image and starts developing and, and patenting their own technology? Will they pose a threat to the United States? Well, that's already happening, Mel. It's, uh, it's been going on now for about uh, three, four years. The, the government in their, in their latest five-year plan has a conscious shifting. It's very much modeled on what Japan did after the Second World War when the Japanese economic miracle uh, kicked in in the, in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, they Chinese started out with the, uh, the cheapest of, of uh, manual labor goods, toys, and things like that uh, that they can uh, export on the world market. And now they're going from these uh, low labor value input items into production of uh, high value added uh, goods, you know, electronics, uh, sophisticated equipment, earth digging equipment, and so forth. And, uh, and that's a conscious part of the plan. So, uh, uh, for example, the Chinese make uh, the world's most inexpensive and most efficient for the price solar panels that have put the Obama's favored solar panel companies in the U.S. virtually out of business and mm -hmm. the Europeans as well. So they're doing that. They're doing this in, in one area after the other. 
that's already underway. They're also uh, hoarding the rare earth metals needed for computers and cell phones. What happens if the scales tip to the point that we are so dependent on this from China? Well, uh, there are other sources of rare earth metals, including Afghanistan, which perhaps is one of the reasons why the Pentagon says we're not leaving, (laughs) even though the official propaganda makes it sound like the U.S. is taking its troops out of Afghanistan next year. Uh, And it's also one reason that the Pentagon says the war against terror is going to go on for another 10 to 20 years. I don't know if people picked up on that in the uh, congressional testimony of the assistant uh, 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 defense secretary recently, but it's uh, uh, the uh, so there are other countries which have these rare earth metals. But the uh, the fact is, for the moment, you, the Pentagon uh, military equipment production in the U.S. is dependent on certain rare earth metals that come from China. Speaking of Iraq, as you know, that the U.S. embassy there is going to be the size of a, of a small city. But here in the Western world, the, the biggest U.S. Embassy right now is in El Salvador, and it's going to be probably overshadowed by the one that's being built in Haiti, the biggest one in the Western world, in the poorest country in the Western world. Why? Do you know? I think the short answer is oil. Haiti? Haiti. Huh. Haiti is swimming in oil. That's my estimation, and I've talked with Russian uh, geophysicists who uh, analyze the earthquake events around Haiti, and they said that entire area of the Caribbean is one of the most tectonically active areas uh, on the planet, and where you have that kind of tectonic activity, invariably you're going to find oil. And one reason I think that uh, the U.S. administration sent in 20,000 U.S. troops right after the earthquake was not humanitarian relief. They didn't do any of that. It was to seal off the area in the Port-au-Prince area uh, in Haiti where, where the oil through the earthquake was seeping to the surface to keep that uh, from being known, keep, keep the Haitian people from being able to develop their own resources, keep a bunch of uh, uh, puppet uh, compradors in there as, as so-called uh, political leaders that are uh, owe their... Uh, job to the New York Times and, and to uh, the Obama administration so uh, so that the Haitian people uh, uh, can't have any national development of their own resources. So it's to keep the oil off the market, I think. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> the Haitians have been saddled with all the debt for hundreds of years with France, and now if this finding comes along... Of course, we wouldn't want them to nationalize uh, the, the oil and become independent and, and not dependent on what we can do for them. Yeah. Yeah. Ask Bill Clinton why he's uh, so involved in Haiti with George Soros and people like that. It's not, I venture, because of his charitable, good-hearted inclinations to help the Haitian people. In fact, Haitians that I know that I'm in regular contact with say it's quite the opposite. He's He's there to work with uh, American multinationals to set up uh, slave labor shops in Haiti uh, using the cheap labor there under desperate circumstances. But uh, that's only part of it. That's not why the U.S. is building such a military compound in Haiti. 
You mentioned something interesting, the labor market in, in this part of the world. We have to depend on China because they have low labor costs, but the expensive part for us here is the the shipping costs and the time it takes for them to ship their goods. And, and that's probably why they have these independent uh, foreign trade zones in the United States that are going to be managed by the Chinese. But you have the Dominican Republic, you have Haiti, cheap labor there. Why haven't we used them? Well, that's that's what's going on now. The Chinese cheap labor advantage of, of 10, 15 years ago uh, with virtually an unlimited labor supply coming in the cities to, to do uh, sweat work, that's more or less over. The wage levels are rising. People are going slowly in China into the middle class. I've been invited to China nine times in the last five years to give talks at uh, uh, virtually every major university in the country. So I've, I've seen a bit of China and uh, the country is, you come to a city in the remote interior of China and you think you're in a major uh, Western city somewhere in Europe or the United States. I mean, these are modern cities with the latest new cars, uh, Mercedes or BMW or, uh, and so forth. So, uh, they're going into a middle class uh, standard of living, and that means the wages are rising. So uh, they have to uh, uh, get higher productivity through higher labor quality. But that means places like Haiti or Mexico are again becoming attractive for, for the first time in about 15 or 20 years. I remember spending time in, in Asia in the mid-90s where things were already developing, but I have had colleagues that used to tell me, I used to fly over China in the 70s, and you could see a light here and there at night. Now, it's just incredible the way they're developing. But there's something very important in your research, and it's the scarcity mythology. Can yep. you discuss the scarcity myth, petroleum, diamonds, spices in the 1200s, and other commodities that require this myth to keep uh, prices up. Discuss the scarcity myth, please. Yeah, well, the scarcity myth, let's take the spice wars, otherwise known in, in Western history classes as the great holy crusades mm -hmm. uh, against the infidel uh, uh, Muslims of Islam uh, in the 1200s and the 1100s and so forth. Well, the crusades, in fact, uh, were not about uh, bringing Christianity and the cross to the uh, Islamic world, but rather it was about control of the the oil of its day, namely spices from the Orient, from the Far East, that were uh, brought on on overland trade routes, the Great Silk Road, among others, uh, from Indonesia, from from Asia, uh, down through the Arab countries. Uh, the Arab trading routes into uh, uh, the Mediterranean where the Venetian uh, ships then uh, brought it to Europe. And things as ordinary uh, that we know today as ordinary as pepper were considered a luxury back then in the, in the palaces of Europe and in the, in the royal families and the nobility. And they would pay almost anything to get these great taste enhancers. So the Arabs, being clever tradesmen, sly uh, camel herders or whatever, they invented a myth that the spices that they were bringing to the Westerners, to the Europeans, were so expensive because they are only able to grow them in remote areas, high atop mountains with sheer cliffs, where 
people are trained from childhood to scale those sheer cliffs to pick a few peppers, and therefore it's so dangerous and so expensive. Well, in fact, uh, uh, the Arabs had the monopoly on, on the spice trade, and they wanted to keep it by creating a myth of scarcity to keep the prices high. Well, oil created a myth of scarcity. It's called the peak oil myth. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a reality. It's a myth. Uh, they created it back in the 1950s. Royal Dutch Shell, the, the big British oil company, British Dutch oil company, had an employee, a geologist by the name of King Hubbard. And King Hubbard conferred with his boss and delivered a speech to the American Petroleum Institute in 1956, where he simply threw out a lot of very bold, unproven assertions. If you read the paper in detail, you realize there's no scientific uh, backup to his arguments. He just says, it is so, therefore it is so. He says, oil is a fossil fuel, therefore it's limited. And the United States is gonna peak in its oil production by 1970 approximately, and then that uh, production will begin a bell-shaped curve decline. Well, the bell-shaped curve is, a, is an invention by a German, a brilliant German mathematician named Carl Friedrich Gauss. It's called the Gauss curve in science, and uh, it's used for IQ tests and so forth, but it's nothing but a, 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 a heurism that Gauss invented to explain a concept. It's not a scientific truth. But uh, Hubbard took this uh, bell curve and said, oil will peak and then it'll start going down like the side of a bell uh, down towards zero. Uh, and that, that peak would be reached in 1970 in America. Well, in 1970 in the lower 48, there was a de facto peak of domestic oil production, but not because the oil wells were exhausted or uh, on their downslide. It was because Big Oil, the Seven Sisters back in those days, Exxon, uh, Mobil, Chevron, uh, Texaco, and so forth, they were more interested in shipping oil from Saudi Arabia and countries in the Middle East where their costs of cheap extraction were pennies on, on, on the dollar. And even the freight cost of shipping those in, in super tankers across the Atlantic made it more economical and more profitable for these companies than uh, to get oil from California or from domestic Texas and domestic U.S. wells. So they lobbied Congress for tax preference that allowed them uh, to do this, and that forced the uh, domestic independents to simply close in their wells and go bankrupt. Exactly. And I'm glad you're mentioning the peak oil myth, because to me, oil doesn't come from the accumulation of algae, plankton, or, or dinosaur remains. In fact, wasn't it a Russian researcher uh, that over a decade of testing an observation concluded that oil fields did not die, that they constantly renew themselves? What does this do to the scarcity myth? Well, it destroys it because there is no scarcity. We're not running out of oil. We're running into oil everywhere we dig a hole in the ground, it seems, almost these days. Offshore Brazil, the entire Mediterranean since 2010 has emerged as a huge new oil and gas basin. By the way, oil, gas, and coal are all classified as, as fossil fuels by the peak oil uh, crowd. Hmm. And uh, they aren't fossil fuels, but uh, we're not certainly not running out of coal. And natural gas uh, is just everywhere in abundance. Well, for the simple reason, what the Russians discovered, they, 
I'm I'm in touch with some of the leading Russian uh, uh, geophysicists and and geochemists uh, who've done this research, and it's groundbreaking research that's been understandably blocked out in the Western media uh, by big oil and and their their lobby and the Wall Street banks because uh, that would just collapse their whole financial structure. But uh, uh, if everyone knew that oil and gas uh, could be found uh, in uh, numerous places where we're told it can't be found today. But the, the hydrocarbons, what the Russians found out in, during the Cold War, during the 50s, when they had a, a mandate from Stalin, you find ways to make Russia self-sufficient in oil uh, because we're in a Cold War. and We can't afford to be, have an energy lifeline to the West. And he was quite right in that. Uh, I would have done the same. Uh, I wouldn't have done some of the other things Stalin did, but on that, I, I certainly agree with him. And what they uh, did, they looked into the literature, the Western literature, and what they found was that the American textbooks, the geology textbooks, that PhDs come out of uh, places like Princeton, where, where uh, I did my undergraduate work, I, I talked with one of the leading uh, uh, professors of geology from Princeton years ago, and uh, they, they come out with this fossil fuel nonsense. Uh, they don't they don't give any scientific proof for the fossil theory. They just assert it as a dogma, like a religion. You know, this is the virgin birth or something like this. And I, I don't want to offend anybody on on the religious side, but I'm just saying it's uh, it's the equivalent of, of something like that or the papal infallibility. So uh, the uh, oil, what the, the Russians, first they did developed a hypothesis. Well, if it doesn't come from dead dinosaurs, uh, where does it come from? And they said, perhaps we can look at the earth as a giant oven. The core of the earth is a gigantic oven. The earth itself is constantly in millimeters per year uh, expanding like a balloon being blown up. And that's what creates earthquakes like what you had in Haiti, where the uh, tectonic plates uh, of the various continents and so forth smash together or come apart. And, and then uh, uh, huge energy comes from the core of the earth through the uh, 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 mantle, the granite mantle of the earth uh, up, up toward the, the top. So the earth is a very dynamic, very energetically explosive uh, body, if you want to call it that. And uh, what they hypothesized is that the gas through this high temperature and, and uh, heat of, of the core of the earth, the gas, the methane gas is constantly being created, uh, CH4, hydrogen and, and uh, carbon, and that is being pushed through cracks in the mantle upward toward places where it gets trapped and that's where the geologists, the Western geologists say the dead dinosaurs all cluster for warmth after they're dead and then transform into oil. Well, uh, I think the Russian explanation makes much more scientific sense. Uh, and, and they uh, have proven that time and again. I wonder, as you say, it's a dogma. Why don't we have scientists at academia? who look into this, and I think the reason is, is clear. Those behind the establishment want to keep that myth going just to keep the prices up. But if there's so much natural gas, you know, so, so much prevalence of natural gas, why do we see so much fracking these days that's killing the supplies of underground water? Well, that's something uh, I've written about and uh, had to ask myself as well. But I, I think the, the, the answer is 
the oil industry controls the fracking in the United States, and uh, uh, but Wall Street was looking for a new uh, uh, IT bonanza to come out of the 2008 uh, financial crisis, and uh, they, they saw fracking as a way to pump up the stocks of these companies and create a uh, you know huge bubble in in that particular market with loans and other things. So that kind of drove it initially, and then it uh, it backfired because it it drove it uh, so intensely that the uh, uh, the new supply of natural gas on the market collapsed the price of natural gas in the U.S. <coughs> so many of the fracking companies had to go out of business. So like you, I don't subscribe to most of, of Stalin's views, but in that one, he was right, trying to avoid being so dependent on foreign energy sources. Isn't that what killed, and we'll discuss this later, but isn't that what killed the Soviet Union, when the price of, of oil was manipulated to go down to the point that they didn't have their exports and to buy more military equipment, and that's what killed them? That had a, a huge amount to do with it. I was invited after the collapse of the Soviet Union to give a talk uh, uh, on economics uh, at, at an institute in Moscow, and I talked with the director of that institute. He said there were two things uh, that... Uh, that uh, collapsed the Soviet Union. One was the uh, the Star Wars, Reagan's military uh, anti-missile defense program, because the Russians knew if the U.S. got it before we do, uh, we've lost. We, we might as well raise the white flag of surrender. And the other was the collapse of the oil price. And that was done. I go through it in the Miss Lies and Oil Wars book, as you, as you probably remember. Uh, that was done in a, in a cabal in Washington uh, between George Herbert Walker Bush Sr. and George Schultz, who was the uh, uh, Secretary for, uh, Secretary of State at the time, uh, the former head of Bechtel, the big CIA construction company. Right. And uh, they developed a strategy of putting pressure on Saudi Arabia to flood the oil markets with their excess reserves to collapse the price. It had two reasons. One, Bush was looking toward the this was 86, he was looking toward the 1988 elections after Reagan could no longer run to uh, take the presidency himself finally. And uh, the second was to uh, collapse the Soviet Union and it had a huge impact on the Soviet Union, just like you say. And you mentioned uh, George Herbert Walker Bush being president in 1988, but I'm pretty sure he wanted to be president since 1980. And you probably heard the story before how Hinckley, the person who tried to kill Reagan, his family was actually very connected to the Bush family. And even one of Bush's sons was going to have dinner with Hinckley's brother the night before. Uh, yeah. Reagan didn't want to have Bush as his running mate, but he was coerced. So how coincidental that in March of 81, just two months after the inauguration, all of a sudden, Bush could have become a shoo-in president. Yeah. Well, uh, what I was told, I have no way of verifying this, is that uh, after that assassination attempt on Reagan by Hinckley, uh, Reagan's uh, decision-making process changed. was changed considerably. Yeah. And they did it through Reagan's wife, Nancy Reagan, and uh, gave her a CIA fortune teller is what I was told. I have no, no way of, uh, uh, but she was very superstitious and bought into this as someone who was going to guide 
her husband through the choppy waters that he obviously was in. Yep, I've heard that too. And if George W. Bush, the former head of the CIA, is uh, whispering in the ear of the fortune teller, we could imagine what kind of, <laughs> what kind of process developed. And the Bush family deserves an entire show all the way starting from Prescott and Bush in the oil business and the CIA connection with drugs. But a connection that I see here, you were talking about the spies wars and yeah. that was the real reason behind the crusades. But I remember in 2001, September of, of 2001, when Bush used a few times the word crusade also. Yeah. He was asked to not use that word again because he had a religious connotation. But we are fighting the war, I call it the war for terror, but the war on terror. It's another crusade. What is the real reason? Are we really looking after the terrorists or was it the spices or the oil in this case? Well, I think it uh, very much has to do with oil and control of the oil everywhere. Um, the since the emergence of the United States as the dominant uh, superpower after 1945, the elites around the Rockefeller family, Standard Oil, the Seven Sisters Oil Companies back then, uh, they decided to use oil as the driving force of the world economy. Uh, before the war, before World War II, Europe was a coal-based economy. After 1945, partly uh, in large part due to the Marshall Plan aid that uh, financed purchase of, of uh, U.S. oil products uh, and, and the transformation of, of Europe into uh, an oil-based economy like the U.S., uh, the role of oil in the world economy became central. And so if you can control the oil, as Kissinger put it back in the 70s, uh, you control entire nations. I think this elite has used control of oil since uh, at least 1945, a uh, little bit before even, uh, to literally control as, as a kind of a, a governor on the rate of development of the world economy. So you can super inflate the price of oil like, like these elites did in 1973, 74 with the, with the, uh, uh, oil shock, the first oil shock, or you can collapse it like they did in 1986 uh, through the Saudis uh, in order to collapse the Soviet Union. So it's it's been used both ways uh, throughout the decades. And now just thinking of false flags and, and the lies that are perpetrated in order to start a major war, I think of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. That mm. scenario do you see that scenario developing now, just like in World War I, with the confluence of things happening in the Middle East and even in Asia with North Korea? Uh, you mean like a, a new Sarajevo event that triggers a world war? Precisely. Another tripwire. Another tripwire. Well, I think uh, some people are trying many tripwires. I, I've done a recent series of articles on, on not on the Boston bombings per se, many People have done excellent work on researching and forensic research as much as the government allows on, on the Boston bombing, uh, the anomalies that the government isn't uh, explaining. But uh, uh, what I found most interesting is the press conference or the press uh, statement by a former very, very senior CIA officer named Graham E. Fuller. Uh, to 
denounce as absurd the idea that the two accused Boston bombers, uh, the Tsarnev brothers, uh, had a link to, as he put it, the agency, which is short for the CIA. Uh, and then he went on to admit that it's true that my daughter married the uncle of these two boys and even lived at our home in Bethesda, Maryland for a year or so. But it's absurd to think that there's any connection between the CIA and these <laughs> Boston bombers. So if you pull on that thread, I think this is, and I said so in, in these articles, they're online if anybody wants to uh, follow them. Uncle Ruslan, the CIA, and the Boston bombings is the title of one. Uh, or you just Google under my name, William Engdahl, and you'll, you'll find them pretty quickly. But the, uh, uh, I think this is one of the most colossal blunders the CIA uh, has made, or certain factions in the CIA, uh, in its history. Because it puts the spotlight exactly for the, the the world on the role of Graham E. Fuller, and if you look at the role of Graham E. Fuller, he was the architect while at CIA of the Mujahideen policy of training Osama bin Laden and all his pals from Saudi Arabia to go in as a, a cadre in into uh, Afghanistan to lead terror operations against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan back in the uh, beginning of the 1980s. And those same uh, mercenaries that were trained by the CIA, Graham Fuller later advocated, should be used in Eastern Europe, like Chechnya, where the Tsarnaev brothers supposedly had their roots, uh, Chechnya and Dagestan and Uzbekistan and so forth, to simply weaken the Soviet, the uh, Russia as much as possible after the end of the Cold War. Uh, he also is connected with the architect of, of the Muslim fundamentalist regime in Turkey that's been used by certain circles to spread Islamic terrorism uh, throughout Central Asia to control China, to control Russia, uh, and so forth. So if you look at the uh, this Boston bombing from the standpoint uh, of the figure of Graham E. Fuller, uh, all sorts of things began to jump up and, and uh, uh, scream out for, for attention. I think this was a huge mistake. Whoever architected uh, uh, this Boston bombing thing, and there's so many anomalies, and uh, uh, the two brothers have never been tried in a court of law, and there's never been evidence presented one of them conveniently is dead, and the other one is gagged. We'll probably never hear from him. Uh, his lawyer can't even take photographs of his client uh, over time to show if there's any uh, uh, physical changes in his client, a reasonable thing given the circumstances. And uh, analysis of the photographs of, of the, the wonder man he's called now on the Internet, uh, a man who supposedly had his legs bombed off yeah. the ball and you see these stumps, but there's no blood. And he's he's sitting there with just having his legs blown off to the stump, and he's, his expression on his face looks like he just finished eating an ice cream cone. It's, it's absurd. So there were, there were a few people allegedly around him who almost had no, no wounds, and they're taking in gurneys to the ambulance, yet they take this guy in a, in a wheelchair? Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, speaking of Fuller again, he's also connected as, as his family as one of the founders of Skull and Bone. So this is so in your face. But since you're also mentioning what's instigating the Arab Spring, and we'll discuss this later, who instigated the Arab Spring or, or the Jasmine Revolution, and who's the real target, and what was the real purpose? Well, Fuller, when he left CIA in 1987, went to work for something called the RAND Corporation in Washington. Think tank. RAND Corporation is a neocon uh, think tank, uh, consulting to the Pentagon, primarily. And... The RAND Corporation developed the uh, uh, the template for the Arab Spring. So uh, whether Graham Fuller directly had a hand in that or not, uh, I don't have a smoking gun, but uh, it's an interesting uh, link back to Graham Fuller and his RAND Corporation days. But the Arab Spring was a project that uh, George Bush Jr., uh, Baby Bush, put on the agenda of the G7 uh, back at the time of the U.S. occupation of Iraq in 2003 uh, as something he called the Greater Middle East Project. The Greater Middle East Project was to introduce a series of revolutions in these autocratic uh, monarchies or dictatorships that you have in the Middle East. These are very uh, top-down uh, autocratic cultures uh, over centuries. Uh, to bust them open, and as James Baker III put it in a, in a slip on a television interview, make what we did in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Bring in the free market, the Chicago boys, uh, you know, everything up for sale, privatization, uh, no government role in anything. And uh, you open up one of the world's last reserves of vast wealth, the state oil fortunes of, like Gaddafi in Libya is a perfect example. Uh, other countries in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, ironically, is uh, the so-called closest ally of Washington uh, in, the, uh, in the Arab world, uh, is also in, in the uh, target for a Muslim Brotherhood revolution against the monarchy. And the Saudi uh, monarchy is damn scared, excuse my French, uh, such that they, uh, they banned the Muslim Brotherhood and sent them out of the country. Now, whenever I think of this, I remember in 2011 when this all started, a lot of people in Egypt were, were cheering. I spoke to other guests of this show, one of them uh, being also an Egyptian. He was cheering that too. And I remember when I asked him the question, I understand Mubarak was a dictator and he used and pilfered the money that was supposed to go to the country. But yeah. what about the unknown of who's coming? We have Morsi there, Muslim Brotherhood. And this seems, first of all, of course, Tunisia, now Syria, but I think Syria is a different scenario because we're just trying to poke. Exactly, yeah. right. And I think they're trying to poke Iran. But all these unknowns that are popping up that might not look like our puppets, what is the real reason then? Well, the, the White House advisor on, on the, the whole Middle East uh, is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The White House is officially supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they see it, uh, or some people advising the president, maybe the president is gradually coming to realize he made a colossal blunder. Uh, I, can't, I can't speak for, for that, but uh, uh, there's a, a policy network in Washington that sees the Muslim Brotherhood, it's a secret society, kind of like a Freemason society uh, that operates underground. Publicly, they have a veneer of moderate Islam, we're for peace and love and uh, fellowship of all religions and blah, blah, blah. But privately, they have a, a private militia 
they run terrorism. Uh, they want to impose the Sharia laws like you had with the Taliban in Afghanistan, where women are reduced to a feudal status uh, with absolutely no rights. Uh, I, I can't tell because uh, this is a public family uh, radio broadcast. Some of the things that are being debated, according to Egyptian friends of mine, in the Muslim Brotherhood uh, section of the uh, Egyptian parliament about uh, uh, relations between a Muslim man and his wife, uh, but uh, it's it's horrendous. It's uh, indescribably brutal. So uh, this is their their real agenda, and some people in Washington think, uh, well, we use them against the communists. Uh, we can use them again uh, against uh, uh, people we don't like, like Mubarak or Gaddafi or. Uh, Al Bashar, the the opposition, by the way, in Syria is Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, this is this is the best organized force in the entire uh, Muslim world today. But it has a history. It has. A, I don't know if we have time to go into that. But the uh, the Brotherhood developed in the 1920s uh, uh, in Egypt uh, from a a man named Bana and. Uh, he created it as a force against the monarchy during the Second World War, when the British were in control of Egypt, the Nazis came in and recruited the Muslim Brotherhood to fight with the Nazis against Egypt to control the Suez Canal. <coughs> well, after the end, and the Muslim Brotherhood were quite comfortable with the Nazis, by all, by all accounts, uh, after the end of the war, uh, the British intelligence came in and took over the franchise, but they were bankrupt. The British state was bankrupt. So the CIA came in and took over the Muslim Brotherhood franchise. And then after the Brotherhood had to go underground in Egypt for trying to assassinate uh, Nasser, the president, uh, the CIA, Miles Copeland, he, he bragged to me once before his death uh, when I as a journalist interviewed him in England oh, about 20 years ago. But uh, the Brotherhood was then brought by the CIA into Saudi Arabia, where they took up key positions in the madrasas, in the mosques, in the universities, teaching this Sharia uh, political Islam doctrine, combining it with the fundamentalist, feudalistic uh, uh, Wahhabite doctrine of the Saudi, Saudi uh, Sunnis. So it was a dangerous cocktail that came together in, in the Brotherhood and the Saudis. Sure. The, all these Wahhabi schools that you see popping up in, in many countries in the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia, they're supposedly our friends. At the same time, they host all these extremist schools that are there just to, to manufacture what appears to be the virus, the extremists, so that we can continue perpetuating this endless war and terror. This I've actually... Uh documented through a, a Croatian friend of mine whose husband uh, came from Bosnia, which is a largely Muslim part of former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And uh, her brother-in-law, uh, who's Bosnian, was a young average guy in his uh, late 20s, played guitar in nightclubs, uh, drank, and, uh, uh, you know, was a pretty typical Western uh, grown up uh, young man and then he came in contact with some of these Wahhabite uh, uh, 
uh, schools in Bosnia and and their uh, tra- their translation of the Quran with the footnotes explained explaining what each passage means and that's that's apparently the uh, uh, the kicker of the thing so the uh, somewhere in Saudi Arabia these uh, Wahhabite scholars got together with uh, as as you can imagine the Muslim Brotherhood and said okay let's create an evangelical brand of Islam that we can spread to the youth around uh, you know around the entire Muslim world and beyond and uh, what they did was make a, a Wahhabite translation of the Quran it's a little bit like the Schofield Bible for the uh, Christian fundamentalists in the US mm-hmm. with all these footnotes Schofield was an alcoholic uh, revivalist preacher uh, who came over uh, originally from England down through Canada uh, you know back decades ago but uh, the uh, this version of the Quran was used by the CIA for a translation into Uzbeki language and languages of the large ethnic minorities of the then Soviet Union and smuggled into these countries to create a radical anti-communism ideology. It preaches a, a, a gospel of jihad, a gospel of hate, which uh, Islamic friends of mine, uh, Muslim friends of mine say that has nothing to do with the traditions of the Quran and the traditions of Islam uh, whatsoever. These are distortions of it. So uh, uh, just as you have with Christianity, you can uh, use that to justify uh, a war with the sword against uh, uh, whatever, but uh, original Christianity should be a, a doctrine of love and brotherhood uh, and one God for all. So uh, this has been developed. It's not only by the Saudis. The Saudis put billions of dollars, the Saudi royals, billions of dollars into the Erdogan uh, government in Turkey over the last 10 years. They've been uh, a Sunni Islamist uh, uh, government in Turkey, a NATO country, by the way, uh, has step by step dismantled the basic uh, civil rights of, of Turkey. Turkey, and I know Turkey quite well, I have dear friends from Turkey. Uh, Turkey was a model of, of uh, an Islamic country where religion was simply a private matter and uh, the state was a secular state and uh, the legal system, uh, Kemal Ataturk, who created modern Turkey back in the 1920s uh, after a bitterly fought uh, uh, war after the First World War uh, against Greece and against uh, the, the Ottoman British. Empire. Yeah. Uh, he created a legal system based on, on Western codes of law and uh, essentially the Napoleonic Code of, of France. And uh, so Turks grew up and he, he banned these headscarves or these turbans for men uh, and the beards and so forth and uh, forced this, this heavier religious presence to, to go back into the home uh, in the private uh, sphere of, of families uh, where he believed it, it should belong and not uh, to be an affair of state. So now that's been systematically destroyed. There are 104 leading Turkish journalists who are in prison detention without charges because they've written against the Erdogan uh, policies. Uh, leading generals who are nationalists who uh, tried to do uh, 
uh, what's what's right as they saw it for Turkey, uh, and oppose the Erdogan uh, process of uh, cleansing the army and the police forces and putting uh, Muslim Brotherhood people in there. Uh, they've been arrested and and uh, put into into prison. So uh, freedom, democracy, that is not the uh, current government in Turkey of the AKP party of, of Erdogan and uh, uh, Gul. But the person behind this is, is interesting. The key string puller, by all accounts from informed uh, Turkish sources that I've spoken with, is a man sitting in eastern Pennsylvania, of all places, named Fethullah Gülen, G-U-L-E-N. And he's created something called the Gülen Movement worldwide. He finances madrasas, schools, Islamic schools. Uh, he finances charter, uh, charter schools, 200 charter schools across America. And those charter schools uh, enjoy tax advantages and other things from the U.S. government. And they apparently are, are uh, preaching this, this uh, uh, doctrine of, of uh, uh, jihad and so forth. But the, uh, the Gulen movement, it's been banned in Russia, it's been banned in Uzbekistan and uh, many other countries because what they do is they bring in, well, there were 150 CIA, 130 CIA agents headquartered inside the Gulen schools inside Uzbekistan immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So those CIA agents weren't uh, memorizing the prayers of the Koran, you can be sure. They were in there undercover to... Uh, bring uh, Uzbekistan in, into uh, the NATO camp. That's just one example. So uh, this, he was brought into the United States and given uh, uh, asylum, essentially. Um, he was uh, wanted uh, by the Turkish government in 1999 for crimes against the state for inciting insurgency and religious hatred. But uh, he was able to come into the United States and get an extraordinary visa on the good offices of Graham E. Fuller, his huh. good friend. Then we see the connection between Chechnya and, and, and Fuller again. But mm. yeah, how, how is this man allowed to finance, say, charter schools in the United States? Well, that's an interesting question. Somebody should ask that. <laughs> his finances are completely opaque. No one knows whether they come from drug money, whether they come from illegal weapons dealings, whether they come from a CIA black box account. Nobody knows. Now, about Turkey, you said something interesting there. For years, I've been hearing that Turkey wants to be part of the EU. Could it be that they wanted, because right now it's the last bastion of, of secularism, that area of the world, but if it becomes more extreme, it becomes less attractive to be part of the EU? Well, I don't see that Turkey will become part of the EU. It's, it's clear it won't. I think that the Turkish government realizes it won't, but... What it realizes, it, it has the potential to develop up until their stupid uh, policy shift uh, uh, for regime change against their neighbor Syria mm -hmm. uh, two years ago. Turkey was positioned to in, in the ideal world. They had a, uh, a special trade uh, charter with the European Union, a preferential trade agreement as kind of a blackmail payoff to not press their uh, entry into the EU uh, more than verbally. Uh, so they had excellent trade conditions uh, for the exports of Turkey into the EU, and, and they were positioned culturally and, and uh, in terms of religion to be the bridge east and west and north and south uh, throughout Central Asia, 
throughout the Middle East and, and whatnot with pipelines coming through Turkey uh, until Syria. And I think Syria will go down as the colossal downfall of the Erdogan regime. Uh, it may take a year or two more before that's evident to the world, but uh, 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 the decision to go against their neighbor and their formerly close neighbor, Syria, in, in a, in a de facto uh, act of war against Syria uh, was a colossal blunder, and that's uh, greatly weakened uh, Turkey's role. Turkey's not going to get into the EU, I can assure you, uh, even before uh, all of this. And Syria. This is one that I think confuses a lot of the listeners, because we really don't know, the mainstream, don't know what's really happening there. But don't get me wrong, I don't like to see the Assad generation after generation dictatorship there. At the same time, like Saddam Hussein, he was able to keep the Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shias glued together. The same thing in Syria. You have the, the Christians, the Chaldeans, the, the, uh, the Alawites, all together. But if you bring somebody else, say goodbye to coexistence, and it'll be replaced with Islamic extremists. Mm -hmm. Well, the Sunni, uh, which is the Muslim Brotherhood, the Sunni are the largest single minority uh, or population group in in uh, Syria. So uh, obviously Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Turkey, all of them Sunni, mm -hmm. uh, are pushing the Sunni option with the Muslim Brotherhood. And that is the leadership of the, of the Syrian opposition, by the way. Is all Muslim Brotherhood. So uh, Syrian friends of mine uh, say to me, William, we have lived side by side, Jew, Christian, uh, Alawite, Sunni, uh, Chaldean, as you mentioned, and so for centuries. This is the Syrian cultural secularism. This is this is our uh, 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 tradition. And if you change this, uh, you're going to open the country to civil war that will have no end, and millions of people will die. There are already four million uh, that have been displaced from their homes inside Syria, and another million, uh, million and a half refugees that fled the country since this uh, uh, onslaught began. The uh, people that are, are dependent on the mainstream media, CNN or uh, Washington Post or I don't know, whatever, uh, should know that from the onset, the attempt to remove uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, as president uh, was motivated from the outside by NATO, by the Obama administration, uh, by Saudi Arabia, by Qatar and by Turkey in a coalition. And Qatar has been the main uh, financial backing of, of the opposition. Uh, including al-Qaeda, by the way. So the United States de facto is standing arm in arm with al-Qaeda terrorists inside Syria demanding a regime change. That's a little bit ironic, I think, after uh, the reason that we supposedly are in this war on terror in the first place, uh, to go after al-Qaeda. But uh, that exposes maybe a little bit of the hypocrisy in Washington for people who connect the dots. But the... Uh, uh, the uh, action in Syria was really foreign finance, very much like uh, Bashar al-Assad and his government have said. Uh, I've documented this. I've, I've 
interviewed journalists uh, in Turkey who speak Arabic, who've traveled extensively throughout Syria. I interviewed uh, an Iranian journalist who spent uh, months inside Syria. Uh, I, I've spoken many times with a peace broker, a mediator, uh, who's Turkish nationality, who spent uh, almost half a year in Damascus trying to uh, broker a deal between the various sides. And what they all verify, and Western journalists who almost got killed uh, because the uh, so-called opposition uh, free Syrian army uh, mercenaries tried to have them killed in order to blame it on the government. Uh, these, uh, largely these are mercenaries or terrorists brought in from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, from Bosnia, Central Asia, from Libya, where they already had a great time shooting up everything and everybody. That's right, North Africa, right. North Africa, and brought into Syria. They're trained in special camps on the Turkish border to Syria. Uh, and as one, uh, more than one person has told me, they're given $100 cash a day to be uh, mercenary terrorists. And they're told, just go in and shoot up women and children, civilians, mm -hmm. and blame it on the government. Blame it on the government. Well, that's the most cockamamie policy you can imagine for the uh, Assad government to be shooting its own people. You, you ensure that you're going to be uh, toppled by, by popular rage. Uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, the population now has come to realize that this is Al-Qaeda. These are foreign mercenaries. I'll, I'll give another example. Uh, uh, a Turkish journalist friend of mine was in uh, the area around Aleppo a year ago, and uh, he was present. Uh, he said he was free to travel all over with the army and with whoever. And he was there with the Syrian army uh, when they captured a, a band of, of these terrorists. And uh, the leader of the, of the terrorists uh, at one point uh, interrupted the, the soldiers, the Syrian soldiers, and said, why are you speaking Arabic with each other? Why aren't you? And they answered, well, we speak Arabic because that's our language. What do you mean? Aren't you the Israeli Defense Forces? <laughs> so they had been actually briefed that they're going in there on a jihad against Israel when it was the Syrian army that they were going, fellow Muslims. So you get an idea of the level of this thing. And uh, once they're in there, uh, they won't get out alive. They know it unless they, uh, you know, just shoot until the last, uh, uh, last Mohican. So... In recent weeks, uh, there's been a series of major reversals for the opposition. I think the Obama administration is having grave second thoughts about the, the wisdom of this and exactly what you say, that this would open the country to an almost endless civil war and that would benefit nobody. They're already having second thoughts about backing Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, realizing that that country is rapidly becoming a failed state, uh, the same in Tunisia. So. Uh, it's a highly complex thing, but it's it was started from the outside. It was started as a project from the Pentagon, from a, a group, a cabal of neocons that were inserted into key positions of power during the Bush and Cheney administration, and they're still largely influential uh, in U.S. foreign and Pentagon uh, policy, unfortunately. But haven't we learned, William, from Gulf War One, for example? Remember the testimony from Nayira, who was allegedly the one Iraqi nurse there who's saying, I remember 
testifying in front of Congress. The Iraqis left the babies, took it from their incubators, left them on the cold floor to die. When in reality, she was the daughter of the U.S. ambassador, the Kuwaiti ambassador in Washington, who was taking the acting classes. The media always makes this look as if it was true. And right now you have the opposition, probably Al-Qaeda and all foreign fighters blaming it all. I mean, a few days ago, chemical weapons supposedly being used. Blame it on Assad. I'm not a fan of Assad, but I think he's the lesser of two evils. Well, uh, that chemical weapon fiasco, you realize, suddenly disappeared uh, rapidly from the media when uh, a United Nations investigative commission determined on the ground that the uh, chemical weapons were in fact being used by by the uh, al-Qaeda opposition against civilians in Syria, not by the government. So suddenly that whole uh, chemical weapon thing vanished from, from the table. Uh, Jean Provocateurs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have to take our one and only intermission just to give you also a break to get some water too. But I have to say, folks, if you like all these subjects, and I'm, I'm the kind of person that's always trying to connect dots, and every time I read a book, I connect a dot or two. But with William Engel's books, every page has a dot that you're connecting. And we'll discuss so much more in segment two. How do people get in touch with all your work? How do they buy your books? Uh, best is to go to my website, William Engdahl, one word, E-N-G-D-A-H-L, dot com. Very simple. And... Uh, there you'll find all my books. You can click on them, buy them directly through CreateSpace, uh, a daughter of Amazon.com, and that uh, benefits me uh, in terms of, of percentage-wise uh, more directly, and that's the only way I finance the work and research that I do, by the way. Uh, I don't have a, a sugar daddy like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett behind me, fortunately. Uh, so uh, go on WilliamEngdahl.com, and on that website, uh, uh, a fan of one of my books actually composed a song that you'll, you'll find on there if, if you like uh, uh, pop music. It's, it's kind of a neat song based on Century of War, uh, my first book. But uh, you'll see a link toward the website, uh, the, the master website, where uh, all of my articles or many of my articles can be read and uh, many of the YouTubes uh, that I've made over the years. So uh, that's the best way, WilliamEngdahl.com. And folks, I have to tell you, I think that William Engdahl will be a a permanent fixture here because I'm so impressed with his work. But when we come back, we'll discuss so much more. We'll go even deeper. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas, and I'm here with William Engdahl. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
this is Peter Lavenda, and you are listening to Veritas. Veritas. 